What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast. It is happy hour number 99, Friday, October 7th, 2022. Happy hour number 99. Next week is happy hour number 100. Uh, man, hope you all could join it. Look, if you are one of the people that are tuning in, uh, you know, later, like listen to the podcast episode, please come to the happy hour. Come to live happy hour. Let's chat. You know, you guys know how to register, right? bit.ly forward slash ADSOH. Come to the happy hour session. I'd be more than happy to have you guys here. Uh, or if you just want to send me a, uh, you know, a question that you want to ask, you guys know my email address, science at gmail.com. Hit me up. Um, if you're watching on LinkedIn, if you're watching on YouTube and you got a question, please do let me know. Just drop your question right there in the chat wherever you are watching, and I'll be happy to get to you. Uh, I just got done with, uh, you know, recording a podcast with uh, Richmond Alaki. I was on, I was on his podcast, uh, so I'm, I'm feeling hyped up, man. Like, you know, I, I th- there's a reason why I stay on this side of the microphone and stay the question asker because when I go on other people's podcast, I don't know if what I'm saying is just rambling or if it makes sense to anyone or if I'm providing any type of value. Um, so, you know, that's why I tend to stay on this side of the podcast, but I had a great conversation with Richmond, excellent host, asking great questions. Um, so shout out to Richmond. If you guys don't know Richmond, check out his podcast. Does some great work. Uh, if you're joining in on uh, LinkedIn, and you got questions, let me know. Shout out to everybody in the building so far. We got Russell Willis in the building, Vin Vashista, Coastal Krishna Morthy. Krostov is at the Brisbane airport waiting for a flight, flying out to Sydney. Hopefully you're having a good, safe flight out there. Uh, shout out to Free Dot to Bello in the room. Happy to have you guys there as well. Uh, if you got questions, let me know, man. I'm, I'm happy to take your uh, your questions and, and kick off the stream. Um, Vin, what's on your mind, man? Let's 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 start there, man. Let's let's see what's on Vin's mind and just riff off of that. Wow, that's a that's putting me on the spot. I'm worried about the economy, worried about jobs reports, and right now just finishing up like budget season and strategy planning season, wrapping that up in the next couple of weeks, and it's it's weird out there. That's that's what's on my mind right now. Is just you know it looks good for data science, looks good for data professionals in general, but just tech as a whole looks. Ugh. Looks like there's some really bad times ahead because there's so many companies that aren't profitable and all of them are just getting beaten. It's it's ugly out there for them. Is there anything like in particular that's top of mind that you think is is causing some of these companies to not be profitable or you know not, not have the the returns that you you think they would? Yeah, it money's been so cheap for so long. That's really what it's been. You've been able to borrow and fundraise and everything else. So valuations were, I don't know, out of wax, not serious enough, but crazy is too serious. And I think that was the problem is companies, I know companies that have been around for eight years, nine years, 10 years, never been profitable, never had to be profitable. And now, you know, over the last year, their stock price is taking like a 90% hit. Somewhere between sixty and ninety percent, founders are—they're looking at their their cash piles dwindling. You know, if they didn't re-raise at the right time earlier this year or late last year, they're—I mean—they're trying to figure out what to do. There are more established companies that they can't service their debt, and so if they didn't refinance their debt over the last six months, when everyone was yelling at them too, but 
some companies actually didn't refinance and they're in trouble too because they can't you know they they can't push their debt off right now and so they have to service some of those big payments coming up soon and like i said if you're not profitable right now all you have, all you have is cutting staff and if you look at companies like peloton peloton's just i mean they're cutting people they can't afford not you know to cut they're starting to lose critical service levels and i think you're going to see that with a lot of other companies where service levels are going to drop to the point where they can't keep their customers anymore Facebook's actually announced something uh, similar as well regarding like hiring freeze and, and restructuring and letting, letting uh, folks go. But uh, let's go to look Coastal real quick. Go for it. I'm not sure how well you guys can actually hear me. Perfect. Can you hear me all right? It's a bit Perfect. noisy. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Okay, awesome. Um, uh, how much is that of that is like, uh, I want to call it COVID inflation, right? Uh, like there's a bunch. I mean, Peloton, obviously, they, they took it absolute skyrocketing during COVID because they provided a service that was naturally valuable at that time, right? And how much of that is just generally uh, US tech companies looking at, you know, um, VC funding where, where, where a lot of it comes down to how much can I set evaluation now that I know I can increase evaluation to sell off again, as opposed to, hey, we're actually providing genuine value, right? As a, as a tech company, because in Australia, we're seeing kind of a mixed bag. We're seeing some early stage tech companies that are super speculative that are getting hit pretty hard. But then there are other tech companies that are doing pretty well and they're profitable and it's fine. And they're not really getting hit nearly as hard. So you've got some companies that are able to, uh, you know, uh, essentially consolidate and grab a lot of the talent. Um, how much of it's like the COVID thing? How much of it is the general overvaluation? How much of it is something else is there something else yeah there's definitely that macro trend i mean a lot of it is uh, demand got pulled forward so if you look at what's happening with amd right now and intel you know the pc market went crazy because there was everybody was at home they needed new machines they needed you know so they were buying and that pulled demand forward so there's definitely a lot of that peloton's i think a different case because they had demand pulled forward and then they bungled it. I mean, they acted like it was going to be like that forever. And so from a supply chain standpoint, they had massive overproduction, you know, and you see that Intel did a little bit of that, but Intel also has some issues with, uh, I don't know, issues with supply chain and decision-making just kind of across the board. They have issues executing. And so you're kind of hearing like, this is the mixed bag that we're experiencing right now. There's demand pull forward. There's still supply chain issues that companies that don't know how to use data, which kind of baffles me at this point. How do you not have a handle on your supply chain? Apple is one of the most complex supply chains on earth and they figured it out. How, how I mean, how are companies that are, you know, supposedly more advanced than Apple not figuring out their supply chain by now? So that's where how much how much of something like that comes down to an experience as well, right? Like you're seeing the profile of tech company leadership. A lot of people are young people like, you know, I'm, I'm in my late twenties, right? I don't know how efficient supply chain is managed, but if I put together the right, you know, package, I'm sure like maybe four or five years ago, I could have got a pretty decent, you know, VC funding round or, a, you know, early stage angel investor to fund me a fair amount without actually knowing how to solve some of those problems. How much of it comes down to, 
are, are we too myopic in terms of what a good tech leader looks like is, you know, uh, your young under 35 hotshot CEOs that are doing that. How much are we undervaluing that in our hiring processes? Like I'm finding that I want to look at companies where there is a really good balance of youth and really good balance of people with solid experience and especially operational aspects of a company, right? Um, how much of it comes down to, are we too myopic as an industry? You know, a lot of it, a lot of these companies, you can see a good step forward. And this is actually something investors love seeing is when they bring in an experienced CFO, when they bring in an experienced COO. And those are kind of the mid stage when you're trying to scale. If you're smart, you bring in somebody who can handle operations, somebody who's focused on revenue and sales, somebody who's focused on, on the financials. And those are all good hires. And you're starting to see now those people are showing up. In some cases, it's too late. You've got companies uh, promoting CFOs to CEO roles. That's a bad sign if you're a tech company. That is the beginning of the end for you. <laughs> that's, that's basically your investor saying, uh, yeah, we don't believe growth anymore. We, we want to see you guys cut a lot. And that's what the CFO comes in and does. But you're right. I mean, when you talk about leadership profile, the CEOs are, and the founders, you got a president, co-CEOs and those types of you know co-founder type joint leadership, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they know they're part of the business. They understand they're part of the customer base. It's the smart ones that bring other people in as they grow and start augmenting the leadership team. I mean, you see that at the very beginning when they bring people onto the board and they'll go to VCs, not just for cash, but to get a couple of advisors. And you'll start seeing them go to you know companies like Bessemer or Sequoia. They don't need the cash. They need some smart people. They need a couple of people from their, you know, from their analyst group or a couple of their parachute team, you know, the people that they go to and they'll put them on the board and they become advisors. And then those relationships lead to a CFO or a COO or a CRO or something like that. And those are, I mean, I, every once in a while get brought in as part of something like that, where a new investor comes in, they bring in a new C-suite and then I'll come in to take a look under the covers to see what's, you know, AI and what's BS. So, I mean, that's the that's the maturing. And if that doesn't happen. Moment of silence. If that does not happen. Uh, shout out to Richmond Lock. I was just talking about Richmond uh, at the beginning of the hour that I was just recording with you. And now you're here, man. Good to have you here. Um, Hi there guys. Uh, so question about valuations, man. One thing that I thought was interesting and I don't know how much like, you know, I'm probably misunderstanding this, but um, it it seems like valuations are very subjective. Like a startup could value itself at whatever it wants and get you know get investment at that valuation. Uh, is is that how it works, Vin? For a while, it wasn't just startups. I mean, major companies were just throwing numbers out that didn't make any sense. But just across the board, companies with no profit were multi-billion dollar companies. And that's that's something that almost every every economist just kind of said, what, how is that even possible? You aren't making any profit. You're losing money for several years in a row and you're worth many billions? Really? There's, you know, there are some backwards valuations where companies that never made any money were worth more than Exxon. 
and these really massive companies. So yeah, for a while it was just all which spack, all of them, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> Spacs were kind of like peak uh, peak insanity. I think we're going to look back at Spacs in the same way we looked at uh, at some of the the mortgage uh, you know backed securities and the junk mortgages back in two thousand and eight. I think Spacs going to be said in the same in the same light here pretty soon. But yeah, what? the valuations for a while, they were, you know, if you could get a VC to believe it. Yeah, sure. What What is a SPAC? I don't think I'm familiar with that. Uh, long story short, it's a whole bunch of very wealthy people that put money together in such a way that they can acquire uh, companies, they can invest in companies, they can get around a whole lot of regulations, they can do some, you know, some interesting accounting. There, there was some, yeah, fake it till you make it. That's it. There were some benefits to a SPAC that I don't 100% understand, but everybody put one together because it was beneficial pooling of cash that you could get away with some things from what I understand. There were some some loopholes that you could get through, and I don't want to call out a client, so I'm not saying particularly what loopholes. Yeah. I don't want to get anybody mad. Eric says a uh, special purpose acquisition company. That's a shell company that is tra- traded publicly that acquires other companies to take them public. That is interesting. That is the interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know why you needed a SPAC for that. You could do that without a SPAC, but sure. No, I'm glad. I'm, I'm very happy for the people that, that made money on those SPACs. It's right I now there's that. so much money in them and no one's, no one's writing checks. And the I people think, who invest in those SPACs right now are going, come on, guys. I think there's like some accounting benefit, like you mentioned, to SPACs as opposed to um, going through the normal trial and tested route, which is IPOs. And as in um, the SPAC king, Chamath, I can't say his surname. Um, I do listen to his podcast and... He's uh, pulled, I think, maybe two of his um, SPACs and as in his sold return of money to the investors because they couldn't find the right vehicles to put the money into. But SPACs, they sound like a blank check for startups to um, essentially get into and just uh, do what they do. But um, relatively, as in not a lot of SPACs have been very successful, the valuation has just dropped. It's been, it's been ridiculous lately. This is something I've never heard of until today. I'm going to have to check this out a little bit more. Thank you so much for bringing it up. Uh, shout out to Eric Sims in the building. What's going on, Eric? Uh, Jacob in the building as well. Good to have you guys here. Uh, if anybody got questions or comments or anything they want to bring up, please do let me know. I'm monitoring LinkedIn and YouTube. I see y'all. I see y'all there. If you're watching on LinkedIn, go ahead and smash a like. Uh, Eric, what's going on, man? How's your how's, how's your week been this, this week? Um, I think it's been a good week. I'm trying to remember last couple of days have been kind of crazy. Uh, yesterday I just was like working on something and the product manager is like, Hey, I need these two numbers for these two big things we've done this last quarter. And I mean, could you have them to me by the end of the day? I'm like, yes, yes I can. But, uh, by the end of the day, I was like, as long as it's by the end of the day, like midnight, we got it. No problem. So got that, got that taken care of. And then, uh, we're buying a house. And so we, I had our home inspection today, which, I mean, it was fine, but there's just, you know, always so much craziness uh, associated with the home buying process, which I don't know, you think we would have it simplified after having done it for like a couple hundred years or something as a, as a country, but 
now it's just complexity, just breeding more complexity. Well, congratulations again, the house man. That's awesome. I'm uh, super happy for you and excited to uh, to to maybe see some pictures, man. Send some pictures to us in that uh, in that group chat we got going on. Yeah. So talk talk to us about if if you can kind of just like at a high level this this interesting request that came in. Uh, what was kind of like the nature of it? How how did you kind of navigate that uh, that challenge? Sure. So the the request was just to get some numbers to kind of summarize the impact of some improvements that we've made over the last quarter. And there have been two important things that we've done, both related to how we route. So LendingTree, we're a lead generation company, right? And so it's to how we route leads to experience A, experience B, or experience B1 or B2, right? And this this one in particular was a little bit tricky because I had kind of a couple of different layers. And one of the ways that has really helped me organize my thoughts for getting numbers to somebody is one, I got to think about like, what does the product manager care to see? Right. Because I could like just send him a deluge of numbers in a spreadsheet and he would like probably just, he would find it because he's a smart guy, but it would, that that's not really his job. His job is to like do product stuff. And so what I've started doing when I'm dealing with projects that are a little hairier or have more layers to them than I can like store in RAM is I get out a word document and I'll just like start writing questions, hypotheses, whatever, as I go to be like, what was the percentage composition of this? What about the absolute something, blah, 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 blah. I'll kind of write a few things out and I'll just go one bullet point deep on each on that first one and just go, 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 go until I've kind of answered all my questions and I back up and then go, 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 go down another cascade of bullet points through the next question that I had. And that way, you know, one or two pages later when I'm like, oh crap, did I validate such and such a thing? I just scroll up and yes, I did. Okay, we're good freak out averted, you know, go back and continue on with my work. And then when I'm done, I've got this nice little sheet of work that I've done with numbers that I can look at and then pick out the ones that are the most important, put them into bullet points, and then just really try to distill it down to the very like simplest thing that I can share with somebody. And I, I've really gotten into it. I, I didn't really do this kind of word document type stream of consciousness, whatever you want to call it, interstitial journaling type thing until, I don't know, maybe like six months ago. And I found it really helpful for keeping keeping myself organized as I go through a non-linear process. Eric, thanks so much for sharing about your uh, workflow, man. That's <laughs> I like that depth that's, that, that you shared there. If anybody's got questions on LinkedIn or on YouTube, do let me know. I'm monitoring all the channels. Happy to take any questions. Otherwise, we just we just go with the flow, man. Uh, Richmond, it's good to have you here, man. Good, good to have you here on the first time. I know we've been in contact through your podcast. You've been pushing out some amazing episodes of your show with the. Uh, I know Vin's been on an episode there, and a couple other friends of mine, man. How have you been? I've been good. I've been great. Today's a good day because I've got to speak with you. Yeah. A couple minutes ago. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, today's a good day. Today's a good day. Couple technical things going my way, so it's always a good day if that happens. Yeah. So you're working as a, uh, um, I guess you, uh, the title is like an architect, right? Solutions architect, if I have that um, right. Machine learning architect. Yeah. So this is a title I don't really come across very often, and I, I think it's one that is uh, 
probably not familiar to a lot of people. I know Vin talks a lot about uh, machine learning architect as well. Um, but uh, how is the role of an architect different than, let's say, a traditional data scientist or maybe even you know a machine learning engineer? Uh, what are some of the differences? Yeah, as in my background um, into the field was working in startups. So I used to work as a computer vision engineer or ML engineer before becoming a machine learning architect. And the key difference between the engineering level and the architectural level is mindset, right? So at the architecture level, you're thinking at things at a very high level. So I find myself thinking about um, what the data engineering, what the data engineering team is doing, um, also what the ML ops team is doing and what the engineering team is doing and being able to take this different perspective of building intelligent products or machine learning systems and be able to communicate that in a client in several different ways. So it could be verbally, through diagrams, or through proof of concept is, is a unique skill. Whereas within the engineering side of things, I just had to deliver a feature, right? I just had to build a, a computer vision model that could classify, I don't know, cats and dogs or whatever on an app. And, and that was it. So it's, it's mindset shift and awareness of the other aspects and roles within um, machine learning, essentially. And uh, it's an interesting field. So I started off. Um, I started off exploring the data engineering side of things, and now I'm exploring ML ops. And man, ML ops is a crazy world. It's a crazy world filled with loads of tools. Yeah, filled with uh, a lot of that VC money has been f- uh, pumping through ML ops tools for sure. So was, being like an architect is that something like somebody can jump right into after you know completing some training. Or does it require like years of experience? So um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna front and act like I've been I've been in the field for decades. I've been a machine learning practitioner for um, three three and a half years now. Two years, um, yeah, three and three and a half years. Two years as a computer vision engineer. Um, but here's what's happening. Actually, no, two and a half years. Two years as a computer vision engineer. Seven months as a as a ML architect. And I was a computer vision, a computer vision engineer at a startup. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is because I had to be able to think about the entire system because I was almost responsible for the entire system in a startup, right? So in a startup, you wear different hats. So I was talking to the CTO and I was talking to the to um to the customer, to the sales team, talking to the designers and just explaining what I'm doing at a very high level. So in a startup, you have to wear different apps. And I feel like that prepared me for this machine learning architect role um, from, from the mindset perspective. Whereas if you're working a large corporate company or big tech company, you'd be very focused on your role because they've got people to do the other things. So you might not get that exposure. But is machine learning architecture something you can learn and, and then jump, jump right into the role? I would say... No, you need the experience of actually building system and understanding this system to be able to execute on this uh, job function. Um, although there are system architecture lessons you can take, and there are loads of books. There's practical ML ops, machine learning system designs, and there's so many ML ops books that you can take, or or books that cover things at a high level you can consume that will prepare you for this role. But experience is king. So talking about that mind, 
mindset shift. Um, so when you're working as just a, no, I don't say just a, but when you're working as a engineer at the engineer level where you're kind of just doing one feature, um, I imagine that you're kind of working in, in terms of just uh, writing a lot of code and just kind of narrow focused on small bits of it. And it seems like for the architect, maybe you're not coding as much directly onto one particular feature, but you're kind of taking the bird's eye view and seeing how different pieces fit together. I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth. Why don't you tell us this mindset shift and, and specifically the mindset shift you have to make? Yeah. Um, one thing is, uh, I would like to say being a machine learning architect is not the same as being as a, I guess, a building, an actual physical building architect, because they can draw the the plan and the the um the schema of the building, but they can't actually build the building. But if you're when you're a machine learning architect, you need to know how to think about things from the architecture level, but you also have to be able to implement these things as well. So um you need to have you need to be basically uh, have a balanced skill set. And uh that is, I guess the the title is a bit um misleading because you think you're just dealing with things at the architectural level, but you are writing a bit of code as well. And you have to have some not in-depth knowledge, but enough to be able to deliver either proof of concepts or be able to communicate um, the advantages or disadvantages of certain um, decisions or, or, to, or tools, essentially. So um, I find myself doing a lot of um, knowledge building, right? I've got a bunch, uh, over the next coming months, I've got a bunch of articles that are going to be coming out on ML ops, data engineering, data ops, and there's a lot of learning to do. And especially with the field of machine learning, it never stops. And you mentioned ML ops, like is it is that synonymous to like a machine learning architect? Is that like an ML ops engineer, machine learning architect, the same thing, or is it just the overlap is is really great? Yeah, um, I think it's it's more like the overlap. Like a machine learning architect is thinking about things from a high level, so you need to know what a machine ML ops engineer is doing and also how to do what they're doing as well, which is the key the key thing. Um, I also need to know what data engineering is doing and also how to do what they're doing, but I don't need to know it at the depth that they know it, but I also need to know how, how they do it to be able to either come, in, come into the picture or to be able to actually drive some um, technical requirements as well. So that is, uh, um, MROPS is just my area of focus now um before it was data engineering like i said i'm just building that knowledge base and i'll be moving more into data ops is time to look more interesting so maybe in a three months time i'll be going into data ops as in mark uh mark friedman um uh puts a lot of great content on data ops so um i'm consuming a lot of his linkedin posts yeah yeah mark's Mark's got the the pod, not the podcast, but the uh, newsletter launching about data ops and a whole bunch of content around that. That's uh, something that he's uh, really big into. Uh, just talking about real quick, you, you mentioned you're creating articles as you're learning, and and like talk to us about that because you're, you're quite prolific on on Medium. You got uh, a lot of articles, huge following on on Medium. Is writing a way that you kind of teach yourself, or, or how's writing fit into your learning? Uh, scheme yeah is it writing is essentially part of my of my learning it's it's pretty i can't learn without not writing and putting in an article because if i can't communicate what i've learned i don't feel like i've actually learned it um and Kalsub is on the call so me and Kalsub went to the same um university and 
I used to write articles off um, most of the conversations we were having about computer vision and deep learning. And I'll go back to my room and just try to think about it and write it like I'm teaching it. And I'm still doing that three, four years down the line. So nothing has changed. And, and, um, and it's, it's part of my process. It's part of my process. That's one thing that I've been working on a lot lately is kind of like building a second brain, building a better relationship with information and just finding a, bit, a better way to consume, distill, and then create. So I, I'd love to, you know, there's there's a lot of prol prolific writers on the call. For example, Vin puts out a newsletter that comes out multiple times a week and it's just filled with so much knowledge. I, I want to drill down into like kind of your guys' um, processes for for how you navigate, okay, here's the world of my experience, here's the world of content, here's how I go through and then create this new piece of, of work. Um, so yeah, let's start with Vin, then let's go to Richmond, then I'll talk a little bit about my own process. How do you go from um, ideation to output? What's your, what's your kind of process like? That's an interesting one for me because I'll plan out about a week in advance, sometimes two weeks. And I always get derailed by something that's way more interesting that happens during the week or at the beginning of the week. So I'll typically get one planned post out and two, sometimes three of them are just, well, I got this great question from somebody. I think with me, it's probably different than a lot of other creators because I'm older. And so there's a lot of stuff in my head that I could write. And I have to kind of stop myself sometimes because I shouldn't be writing about things like ML ops or data ops or ML engineering. So I think part of my process, and you know, it's probably gonna be what's unique from, from yours is I have to back away and not write about some stuff. I also want to look for an angle that's different because everything that's out there is gonna be covered eight ways, nine ways, 10 ways, sometimes 15 different same ways. So what I want to look for is something that I can bring to it from a perspective standpoint that's unique, where I can reveal something. So if you're reading one of my posts, you're going to discover something new. You're going to get a different perspective on it. And for me, a lot of times that's just bringing leadership into it, bringing the business into it, bringing a larger picture view into it, talking about how like on Monday, I was talking about how macro factors can break your model and how there's a, a significant risk right now of having macro factors just absolutely decimate your model if you're not monitoring it correctly and not monitoring your data correctly. So not getting too far into the stack, but bringing you know insights to people that you maybe won't get elsewhere. I think that's the biggest part of my process. Vin, thank you so much. We're going to come back to what a macro factor is and how it destroys your model after we hear from uh, Richmond and, and his process. Richmond, go for it. Well, I, I like Vin's um, answer. Um, <laughs> I also like your writing. I just got um, one of your emails because I'm subscribed to your um, uh, Substack. And the way Vin writes is so, it really encapsulates the concept of leadership because he writes from such a macro level, but it lets you understand and it relates it to the to, to data professionals. And you understand, you do come away with something new. Um, I, I take a different approach, right? Because I'm I'm a bit more selfish. I'm writing for myself because I'm trying to learn. And I feel when I hit publish in an article, that is a knowledge solidified in my brain. So it's there now. So um, so whenever I'm writing articles, um, I have the idea. The idea is usually um birthed out of the necessity, um, either a skill that I need to sort of improve in, in my role 
or a new skill that I need to sort of explore. So I begin exploring the skills and out of that, let's say ML ops is, is not a skill essentially, it's a field, but let's say ML ops, I can start exploring ML ops. I can create 10 articles from there. And each of those articles are focused on different aspects and I dive deep and I make sure I'm able to explain things in my own words and in my own code as well. So um, that's how I process, that's how I think about articles. And right now I'm, I'm exploring feature store, data versioning. So I've got about four or five articles just on that topic alone. And one problem I seem, I seem to have is I don't know when to stop or when to, because there's so much knowledge, right? So you're like, is this enough? Is this enough? Then eventually I have to hit publish and that's that's when uh, that's my process essentially um yeah do, do you have like a system for um like you know you're doing research then from research you got notes and then from notes you end up with like a final product uh, do you have like a, a system that you use to help facilitate that creation yeah so um I use Notion for my for writing sort of like the first draft of my articles. And in terms of a system, right? So I, I could give like an example. Um, let's say MROPS feature stores is, is a topic I need to learn about. Um, what I would do is uh, I'll create, uh, I'll look for the several good um, resources, which could be research papers, um, which could be articles, which could be books as well. I usually have about 10 to 20 tabs of this open. Then I start to select a few, which ones are important, which ones make sense. Then um, then I start to break down, break it down into the topics. So I look at the high level topics first. So what are the topics I need to understand? And usually what drives this are the, the content page of um, really good books on a topic. So I start to look at, okay, these are the areas I need to explore within feature stores or data versioning. Then I dive into it. I dive into it very deep. I'm not reading just one book at the same time. I'm reading maybe four different books because they all cover the same topics. So I just look for what this, what author A has said about feature stores, what author B has said about feature stores. Now I have the same knowledge as author A and author B. And I create my knowledge, my understanding of this, um, of this particular topic. And that's my process. And I just reiterate and um, I try to make my article readable as well. So I write it like I'm teaching, like I'm speaking, um, which has helped a lot because it's helped my teaching as well. I do a lot of teaching on the side of my Imperial College Business School. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's 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 my process. That's my process. Nice. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Um, uh, by the way, if you're watching LinkedIn, YouTube, you got questions, do let me know. Uh, if you're watching, do smash that like. Uh, yeah, my process has, I've adopted... Um, based on this book called Building a Second Brain, Tiago Forte uh, took his master class as well. And, and um, I realized I just had such an unhealthy relationship with information. Like I was just consuming stuff, but I wasn't, uh, I had no record of it, had no way to you know get the ideas out of my head. So um, what I do now is like, it's, his whole process is capture, organize, distill, express. So capturing is okay. You're coming across a ton of information on the web, uh, you know, how do you how do you figure out what to read? Um, so now what I do is I come across an article and I, I put a filter on it, right? And the filter is, you know, there's about three or four things right now that I'm most interested in or that are most important to me, my career, um, or, or what have you. And if the article I'm coming across doesn't immediately address those three or four things, um, I'll just reject it. I'll just, you know, whatever. It, it's good. 
Maybe I'll come back to it, you know, whatever. Um, but if it is something that touches on my important questions, then I'll do it, a, you know, give it a once over. I'll, you know, kind of screen it and see, okay, does this have good quality? Is it, does it look like it's giving enough details? Then if it does, then I save that to like a read it later app. In the read it later app I use, um, I know some people use like Instapaper. Uh, that's one. And, you know, a couple other ones, but I use matter, just mat get matter dot app and, uh, save everything to that read it later app. And once everything is in that read it later app, I'll go through and I'll highlight in matter. And the highlights from that article get synced automatically to this, uh, second brain of mine called obsidian. Then in obsidian, uh, all my notes are there. I'll organize them to, you know, what category they fall into and then I'll distill it. So I take the highlights that I've got, I'll distill it either even further, just so I get the main essence of what that article is about. Um, and then on top of the note, right, you know, I'll divide it on top of the note, I'll, um, express. So, okay. Given this body of work that I just read, if I was to write a LinkedIn post, what would that post look like? And then I put that right there on the top. So now that's my expression. That's how I understand this. Uh, and it's, it's been so helpful, man. Uh, it's been super helpful in just managing this deluge of information that is, uh, that is out there. Um, so let's, uh, let's circle back real quick. Macro factors and machine learning models, right? Let, let's talk about this, Vin. Break, break this down for us. First of all, what is a macro factor? So macroeconomics, just the highest level fundamentals of the economy that affect everything, everyone. That's the simplest way to explain it. <clears throat> but when you look at them from a data science and machine learning standpoint, those are the things that indicate there is some change in the marketplace coming. And so anything that touches a customer, anything that touches a complex network, and this is what I was bringing up on Monday's post, was anytime you have a complex network, it's going to touch one of those macroeconomic factors, one of those macro factors. Things like inflation, that's a macro factor. Your issues with supply chain, and that's the one I brought up because Nike was struggling with inventory that they all of a sudden have and Target has the same problem. Walmart had the same problem. With Walmart, though, it was a little different. They didn't have the right mix. And so their models weren't sensitive enough or their monitoring, excuse me, wasn't sensitive enough to changing customer behaviors. And so they only found out after they made a bad decision, ordered a ton of inventory and then realized, whoops, customer behaviors have changed. We didn't see that coming. Why not? So there's different types of impacts when you deal with these complex systems and your models always touch complex systems. Sometimes your models are supposed to be complex systems. We say they learn functions, but now models are more complex than that, especially when you have multiple models interacting with each other trying to simulate your supply chain, trying to understand how inventory should be planned. And one of the things that Nike didn't do was look at it from a, what could impact you know, negatively our inventory? What could cause a shortage? You know, what could make this worse? Or what could cause us to be in the situation that we're in right now, which is to have this glut. They weren't looking at how the supply chain kind of evening out and suppliers coming back online after COVID lockdowns could be this horrible, perfect storm that they're in right now. So instead of monitoring and really changing the feature set a little bit more to include a different definition of inventory, where it's what's ordered and late, plus what's in transit, plus what's in your warehouse, you know, doing something like that 
and watching what could impact each one of those. And so from a macro factor standpoint, you could have watched the price of containers because those have been dropping. And that's an indicator that demand is dropping, supply chains are normalizing. And so if you're looking at that, you can say, okay, that's a leading indicator that I need to be paying attention to. Uh, one of your suppliers coming back online after a COVID lockdown, you're going to say, okay, all of a sudden these orders that have been back ordered are going to all of a sudden start flowing in. Okay, so that's something I need to take into account. I need to slow down my ordering. And if you look at what Macy's did, Federated did a pretty good job of this, where they have less excess inventory. I think it was only 7% where most companies were double digits. I mean, high up their double digits. And those are the types of macro factors that you can monitor. I mean, you can't predict something like that because a lot of macro factors change right now, especially change unexpectedly. And so you can monitor the data to say, okay, all of a sudden shipping container prices are coming down. That's something I need to pay attention to across ordering, pricing, supply chain. And those are the kinds of things you can monitor and say, okay, if that changes, my model is probably going to become unreliable. And you can advertise that to users. You may not be able to retrain it immediately because you don't have enough data or you don't really understand how the problem space has changed. So you may not be able to immediately deploy a new solution, but you can at least tell, you know, your, your, your demand planning team or the people that are buying, you know, your buyers and purchasers, you can tell them, hey, it, uh, I've detected something. This model's not so hot. Don't rely on it as much as you used to. Here's what I'm seeing and here's what you need to know. Now I need smart people. We need to go back to you guys being smart, or you girls being smart. Help us out. Can you, can you give me a hand here? Because my model's unpredictable. And that's one of the problems with sort of these descriptive models that are being passed off as something more reliable than we just learned the data set because the, you know, you're getting used to it being right because the data set is representative of the times that we live in. And then all of a sudden times change. And if you don't understand where the holes are in your model and when it's going to start behaving unpredictably, you don't tell your users and they're, you know, like right now there's a whole bunch of people at Nike going, but it wasn't our fault. The model said, and that's, you know, that's where I say, look at macro factors, but understand how they impact your model. Cause that's going to make a big difference, uh, especially to frontline users, just being able to advertise it. Because I mean, think about it. If demand planners and buyers were making decisions based on a model from a data science team at Nike, how much are they ever going to trust that again? You know, being that the stock just got pummeled. I mean, 10, 10 or 15%. I can't remember. I can't remember what it was taken down, but it was, it was a number that your CEO will fire you for. And, you know, so you got to ask yourself, are, is anyone in that group ever going to trust your model again? So these macro factors, like, I guess who would be, who should be, I guess, responsible for monitoring this? Because I imagine, like, you know, a frontline data scientist doing their thing, um, they might get caught up in, like, the nitty-gritty of the day today and might not have the bandwidth to monitor or track this stuff. Like, is it, are you supposed to catch this through, you know, maybe a, a model observability type of platform? Or is it just something where you just kind of take your head out of the sand real quick and just look around and, and see what's happening? How, how do you, I guess, monitor? Oh, just... Yeah buy third-party data. I mean, financial companies both consume and a lot of them produce and sell 
these types of data sets where, and I mean, some of them are real time where you get it day to day or hour to hour, but I don't think you need that much of that rigor. It's usually having something that's watching a data set that gets updated weekly is enough to give you the insights into, and then just having a understanding of your model to know that these are some of the problems that you could encounter. And a lot of times you can do that just with experts. And I love graphs for this basic structural causal models are kind of going a little further than most companies do, but just creating a basic graph of what features are important to your particular model, or at least what are the most important features and then letting really smart people, anybody in supply chain that's been there for 15, 20 years, you want that person staring at that chart and saying, you know what, you're probably not thinking of. And they'll tell you, you know, this I've watched in the past, or I've seen this happen before. Or I remember this one time back in 1990 when, and I mean, they are a gold mine. They will tell you where your bad assumptions are. And if you give them a little bit of training, so that they can look at it and, you know, you basically present this graph to them. Here's the features. Here is the thing that I think these features impact, you know, whatever metric that may be. And they will come back at you and say, okay, so that one right there sounds good. Not doesn't work. And they will give you a whole different view of the assumptions that get baked into your model. And they're going to also then call out new features. You can realize why have I not been at wait? So I could have just been asking experts and they would have been doing half of my feature engineering for me. Really? That's all I had to do was get smart people. And that's kind of a surprise for a lot of data scientists is the monitoring and what you should be monitoring and what data you can buy. Those are all, a lot of times you can talk to experts in the field. You can talk to analysts at investment houses, especially if you're in a company that's uh, covered by analysts at large investment houses. You can, you have people in your company who have access to them. And you can talk to them and get some answers about, you know, what are you guys watching? What are you worried about? What do you think is important when it comes to our company? What are the fundamental? And you get just these rich answers from investment analysts because they want, they want some info from you too. They want to get a little bit of what you're thinking and how it just, there are so many different relationships with experts that you can tap to understand the types of macro relationships that are out there. Can I um, yeah. speak into Vince's answer? As in, I love the fact that Vin always takes me at the, the business, the macro level, very good. Because um, it ties in with what I've been exploring within the ML ops space. And, and the question was, how do you detect and monitor this, these problems, right? So what, what we're mentioning here is data drift, right? So you have a change in, in, in the data and the data set, and that leads to things like concept drifts and, and feature drifts. So... There are tools out there within the ML ops ecosystem that are built to detect this change, at least in the in your in your data. So in your feature distribution, they can actually pick up any sort of significant um, change in feature distribution, or maybe you set the threshold. So um, I think the industry is starting to realize that there needs to be some sort of uh, infrastructure to be able to enable the monitoring, the detection. And essentially, to be able to allow people to act, the question is, um, uh, how quickly can you detect a problem before it becomes an issue for the customer, or it propagates further down the pipeline and it becomes irreversible? So, um, it, it's something that a lot of companies are trying to solve, and that's why there's a lot of VC money going into the ML ops space because now we have all these machine learning models in production doing stuff, but. The human world is very unpredictable, especially in this time. We've had COVID, 
now we have this massive economic downturn, supply chain issue, um, geo geopolitical tension. So it's really uncertain times, which means uh, our models that were built on data sets from relatively um, uh, what we'll call certain certain times uh, are not really um, performing well in in um, in today's market or in the future market. So. Um, there's a there's a place for this ecosystems of monitoring tools that and that's what MLOps is essentially um, one of the principles anyway. But Vin's answer was very very great. I love it. I love listening to Vin. <laughs> and also, what you're saying is you're actually calling out one of the gaps that we don't have enough tool coverage in. So we're monitoring our models really well. We're monitoring the data that feeds our models really well but the indicators of change happen one step upstream and we don't have tools for that unless you create i mean like i've seen cron jobs doing this it's it's terrible it's just basic ugly logging of a database and you get a report that'll tell you whether some of those data points that feed into and have well correlated if not believed to be causal connections to the input data for your model. And when those change, you can see those happening before you see the pain happening in your model. And so what Richmond's calling out is like this gap that we don't have, you know, for from a tool set standpoint, is we've got, you know, a lot that's focused on features and on the model itself and on data drift and concept drift and all of the things that are fairly well known, but we don't have something that validates our assumptions. We don't have anything that's doing continuous assumption validation. And so when he's talking about like geopolitical instability, that's, that, that's, we don't have anything that monitors that. You have to set this stuff up manually. It's, ugh, it's, it's ugly and it's underserved. Potential startup idea for, uh, I mean, would you, yeah, what would a startup look like that did this? Like, would you just be like a data vendor? Like, I feel like you just, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, if you could, basically all of your pricing models have similar macro factor impacts. When you have inflation, obviously your pricing model needs to change. When customers become more price sensitive, your your model needs to change. When their behaviors shift like they are now, they're going a lot of different segments of customers are going from products to experiences. And so that's going to cause drift. And each one of those, I mean, if you just had, this is, like I said, this is stuff that finance companies already do. They're already tracking these. A lot of hedge funds have unbelievable visibility into these very small changes. And they have these models that they've spent forever building and validating and rebuilding and revalidating. And the people who do it are very, very wealthy data scientists. And so, I mean, it's not like it's impossible or it hasn't been done. It's knowledge that hasn't gotten out into the rest of the data science field. How do we get that knowledge, man? Like, what, what do we got to do to get that knowledge? Like, that's that sounds like a goldmine opportunity for people who are in the field and maybe, you know, thinking about what's coming up next in the career. It's it's weird that every, a lot of people know this, but a lot more people don't. It's just, it's not like it's a, it's not like it's unknown. You know what I mean? Did you see Richmond nodding his head and I'll bet you Russell's you're kind of nodding his head too. We all kind of 
you know, most of us know this stuff, but you'd be surprised how many people don't. And it's not for lack of all of us talking about it. It's really, I don't know if maybe they don't have enough time. Maybe that's it. You know, they got too much else to do. Their focus is a little bit too granular. They're not being asked to build at a higher level of reliability. Maybe the use cases that they're that they're going after right now are still pilot project level. And could be a lot of things. I don't know. I, I, I can't tell you why we have so many huge companies that make the same mistake as someone else made a month and a half ago. And then, and I'm serious, in another 45 days, you'll have somebody else make the same planning mistake. Where I mean, you saw Peloton do it in December last year. They overordered. They had to drop their inventory back. They basically warned everyone in December, watch your supply chain, watch your inventory, watch for overstocking. And no one, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're 10 months later and everyone's still making the same mistake. How? So I guess our, our tech companies that don't have any like physical products or are they immune from these type of issues or what considerations should, should they make that or lessons rather that, that they can learn from some of these physical goods type of companies? I think anything digital is going through the same thing. You just don't have inventory, but what we're seeing is a lot of the inventory was talent because the bottleneck for most R and D is we can't get enough people. We can't scale because we can't get enough people. And so Google scaled, Facebook scaled, it, all of these companies overscaled. And now Google's looking around going, what do all these people do? That, that's literally what Google is doing. The CEO of Google right now is walking the halls going, what are you doing? What are you working on? Hey, so what are you working on? That's, he's taking a poll right now. And they're going to reorganize and probably slim down a little bit. And Zuckerberg did that, I think, in March or April of this year, where he started walking around going, wait a minute. Do we need all these people? What what are they working on? So that's where the overstock has come in is they overhired. Amazon did it with their warehouse workers, but they know demand eventually will catch up for them. So they're going to keep a lot of their workers uh, as long as it's feasible because they understand right now the bottleneck of talent for them is a bigger issue than spending a few tens of millions. That's nothing to them on, on having more talent than they really need. And so that's the equivalent is the talent because the cloud made it easy to scale up, scale down. And so there's really no overstock of hardware or resources or compute. Data doesn't get overstocked. You don't, I mean, there's no such thing as too much. Well, okay, no, I take that back. If it's terrible, there's too much. There's no such thing as too much good quality data. (laughs) But that for them, it's really talent. And you're going to see a lot of it also spending. If you look at moonshot projects, A lot of companies right now are having to make some really tough admissions to their boards that are going to be public in January, February next year, where they spent billion plus on something that will, it's just not going to work. And those are kind of, you know, it's the same idea where when you're demand forecasting and you're looking at an innovation project and you're saying, you know, it'll get there. Demand will materialize, like especially a lot of these headsets that no one really wants. Company said demand will materialize and nope, it won't. So those are kind of the same lessons is if you expect, you know, the consumer to spend forever, they won't. If you expect the labor market to be tight forever, it won't. 
if you expect demand for you know luxury goods to go up forever, it won't. It's just every one of these trends. If you think it's going to go on forever, then you're going to miss the you're going to miss the bigger problem. Uh, you know, it's it's the crypto warning. <laughs> um, one thing I was going to add on to that is um, the awareness piece, right? Personally, for me, the only reason why I'm aware of the things that are happening, especially um, the tools that could be used, is because I'm very close mates with someone who's a who's a, works in the risk management um, side of things within a financial institution. So it's their job to be able to sort of think about the worst case scenarios of things that can happen. And this is what Vin was talking about with financial institution, right? They have all these risk models that are able to take into account several different variables and be able to then decide if maybe an investment is worth is worth pursuing or someone is worth investing in. And really within the tech space, we don't have that sort of um, infrastructure because we've never really needed it, right? Um, at this point in time, at this moment in time in history, we've had a domino effect of um, several different global, um, what I would say, um, uh, unfortunate events, right? So we had the pandemic, and from the pandemic, we had inflation, global economic downturn, and that now we have the VC market drying up, we had a crypto market drying up, we have geopolitical issues, we have famine because of wars and grains are not getting to other places. So there's a bunch of domino effects of things that are happening one after the other that they, they haven't happened in pretty much, I would say, history in terms of the, the um, sequence at which they're happening in, and the gap between them as well is very close. So financial institutions, they're basically built to be aware of unpredictability, um, whereas, uh, I guess modern day companies might not be because we don't have to take these things into um, consideration or the sequential events of unfortunate events happen uh, frequently into consideration. And that, that's what, that's my two cents on that matter. Russell Vin, thank you all so much. Uh, don't see any other questions coming in on LinkedIn or on YouTube or right here in the chat. Uh, small little crew for the happy hour today uh hopefully next week for happy hour number 100 we get it popping get a lot of people in here uh i'm gonna actually set up a facebook event i'm gonna sit down like set up an event on facebook not facebook linkedin jesus christ uh setting up an event on linkedin it's just it it drains my energy i don't know why it just feels like there's so much effort required in doing that um but i'm gonna do that and uh hope we get get this thing popping man hopefully get some old faces back dude i remember like two years ago doing this thing and it would be like 50 people in here going crazy man it was it was a good time um but nevertheless i'm thankful for y'all for coming here uh this happy hour not happened without your guys participation without you guys watching and listening so thank you so much for being here take care my friends have a good rest of the weekend remember next week happy hour 100 join in bit.ly forward slash adsoh register come hang out uh if you got questions that um, you want to send to me feel free to send them over at the artists of data science at gmail.com all right my friends take care have a good rest of the weekend remember you got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone